Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Tis the season of giving, tis the season of light, tis the season where the weather really starts to bite. But to fret about it is just a waste of time. Instead, pour yourself a tall glass of wine. And welcome to Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where we take whining very seriously and we whine about women that you probably haven't heard of. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And welcome and thank you for joining us. Sorry we like took a little break there. Uh, Life life got real. I got incredibly overwhelmed. Uh, And And I got really sick. So it just worked that... You didn't get an episode last week. Yeah, it's, you know what, though? Uh, We are cracking down. We're having, like, a whole ass podcast day where we're doing a ton of recording, not only for you, lovely listeners, but also for our dearest, loveliest patrons. So, yeah. And the patrons got the video from October. Yay! Hopefully it was worth the wait. (laughs) Well, by by the time this comes out, it'll have been, like, two days, but... yeah. It's my, fine. my bad, people. It's fine. If, if you watch to the very end, there's a conversation about how we get sweaty when we, we record that I cut out of the middle and put at the end. Oh, good, good. Because, um, yeah, I, it, it's it a problem. Like, and it's it's weird. I don't get as sweaty when we record audio, mm-hmm. but whenever we do video, I am a mess. I know you're over there like in like a fleece line jacket and I'm over here like, I'm so hot. Yeah, I'm, I'm chilly today. It's because uh, I'm in layers. Yeah. Wait, well, I have, I have, I have a sweater yeah. and then no sleeves under my jacket. Then I might it. take it off later when I start get getting hot and rolling. When the wine hits When you. I start getting the wine sweats. Yeah, right. <laughs> Give me those cab soft sweats, baby. Yeah. So, uh, we kind of have a say their name. It was more of a like excited, oh my God, kind of moment on Twitter. So we'd like to shout out Dr. Anya Gabor for... Basically retweeting our episode, but for also like being a history professor and actually listening to our podcast. Which is kind of insane. Like whenever people who clearly know what they're doing are like, this was cool. I'm like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> I'm jello now. So thank you. And we hope you enjoy. Yeah. And you can, uh, what, what's her Twitter handle if anyone um, wants to follow her? At Anya underscore Gabor. So it's at A-N-Y-A underscore J-A-B-O-U-R. We're probably saying it wrong. I bet it's like Javor, something like super fancy. Probably. But we're following her, so you can always find her through us as well. But yeah, that was, she, uh, she enjoyed the story about Mary Jones, which I was really happy with because I was kind of anxious about that one, mainly because there wasn't a ton of information. I'm like, what if I'm totally misrepresenting this situation or something? So right. that was that was nice. And Those are always a little nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah. Where it's kind of like, I don't know, I feel like I'm filling in the blanks or I'm trying to like intuit what was really going on or read between the lines. But yeah, so that was exciting. Mm. I don't know. I'm like, oh, you, well, you're actually doing the damn thing while we're just pretending to do the damn thing. <laughs> we do other damn things. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we drink wine while we do the damn thing. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, Kelly, what are you drinking today? What am I drinking? Yeah. Am I drinking alone? Well, I am also drinking, but what is your wine? I'm sorry. I'm out of it already. <laughs> uh, well, I just noticed it doesn't have a description. No. But it is... Um, Phoenix by Pen- Penley Estate. It is a Cab Sauv. My so favorite. Cabernet Sauvignon. What's cool, I just realized, is they wrote, like, who made it. So the winemakers are Kate Goodman and Lauren Hansen. 
And the viticulturist, which is the person that works with the grapes, is Hans Loder. And they have a quote. They do have a quote. It says, wine is sunlight held together by water by Galileo. Oh, well, if Galileo likes wine, then that's how you know it's a legit beverage. Apparently, this isn't just a Cab Sauv. It's a Kunawara Cab Sauv. Ooh. Yeah, it's a really pretty bottle. It has a phoenix on it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I really like that uh, illustration. Uh, it actually looks like a tattoo. It really like, does. Like, if I saw that as a tattoo on someone, I'd be like, that's masterful. So, because it doesn't have tasting notes on the bottle, we will take a sip and let you know. Yeah. Wait, we need a cheers. Cheers to uh, Thanksgiving. Cheers to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and the start of the holiday season. We are so thankful for you. That clink was for you, lovelies. Oh, it's good. It is good. Definitely dry, like real dry. It mellows out really quickly. Like it has kind of an intensity on the forefront Mm -hmm. and then you can almost feel it like evaporate on your tongue. I will say that is the number one thing I'm getting though is dry. Yeah. But cab sobs are usually pretty dry, so. They can be. Yeah, some of them can be uh, more fruity. But. Yeah, this one isn't as fruity, but not, like, in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Like, it is flavorful, but I can't. I'm not one. I, I don't write wine labels, so I can, can't put my finger on, like, what It tastes like a are. cab sob. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. It's good. Highly recommend. This is the kind of wine where I feel like if you're trying to impress someone, you bring this. Because it's. Always trying it's, to impress you. Uh, well, it's working. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I would totally bring this to like someone's house and be like, oh yeah, oh, this, yes. this is like a, oh, it you're making sophisticated. me, you're making me steak. Let me bring this good bottle of cab sauce. Yeah. It feel, it tastes sophisticated. It's really good. Yeah. I like it. Happy, happy. Happy, happy, happy. And it has a, I noticed the sticker. It is a wine enthusiast rating of 94 points, which I think is really good. I think it's out of a hundred, isn't it? I would assume so. Nice. Very cool. But I don't know for sure. Kelly, how was your Thanksgiving? It was good. Good. It was busy, but it was, it was good. How was yours? It was, um, different. It was different, uh, and unexpected, but really awesome. So for a variety of reasons, my friend and her youngest sister who come from a really big family, mm-hmm. everyone was kind of scattered to the wind for Thanksgiving. So it was just Tierney and her youngest sister. What's up Tierney? And then, um, for, a whole different set of various reasons. I didn't really have anything to do with Thanksgiving. So they invited me over and we had what we called bitch giving. That sounds great. <laughs> Where we drank old fashions and watched Studio Ghibli movies. So we watched um, Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service, Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away. Like it was amazing. And I haven't seen those movies in quite a while. And I appreciate them on an entirely different level. And even, especially like Kiki's delivery service, like her feeling insecure and trying to find herself and like how her passions used to come to her so easily. And then that self-doubt creeps in and she kind of like loses her spark a little bit. I'm like, I relate to this so hard. Like this is, oh my God. So it's like every time I watch those movies, there's another nuance to it, another feeling, another theme that like, kind of presents thinking itself. Thinking about it though, that's what a lot of them are about, like finding yourself, like yeah. spirited away and even like Totoro, which is just depressing when you really think about it. It's not because no one dies. No, no The one kids dies. are not really kid, dead. No. But you know <laughs> I what hate I mean? That it's, theory. It's, it's more sad because like their mom is in the hospital. Yeah. And, like, so I'm going to go back to the wine. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just Googled something. So first of all, I feel like an idiot because the reason it's a Kunawara 
That's apparently a city in Australia. Oh! So it's from Coonawarra, South Australia, Australia. Mama Meg, we're going to apologize to you personally. And in particular, we're drinking the 2019 because they have the different varietals. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found winemaker's notes and I actually really like it. So I'm going to read it now. So it says, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, this cabernet, or sorry, like a phoenix from the ashes, this cabernet rises from the glass with a complex bouquet of plum, blackberry, and anise with a dusting of dark chocolate. It's a delicious contemporary wine, intense and long on the palate with savory tannins coating the mouth. It is best drunk with food, with friends, and with a roaring fire in the background. Okay, we have two out of the three. I mean, we could go to the other room. Yeah, well, well, that's why I'm saying oh, yeah, we that's don't where food. the fire is. We don't have food. <laughs> later, that's later. Yeah, it's fine. There, there's food somewhere around. You know what I kind of like is... It is very Phoenix-like because, like I said, it's like that immediate whoa, and then it kind of smolders mm-hmm. out pretty quickly. It's good, though. I like it. I like a wine with a theme. I do, too. Especially like a mythological theme. So am I kicking butt first today? You are. Oh, with my long, my longer story. We've done, we've done, been doing pretty short stories lately, but yeah, mine is, mine is pretty short, uh, so we're balancing each other out like a fine wine. Like a phoenix rising from Like a phoenix rising. <laughs> but like I, t- I told Emily that the last like page of mine is just a bitchin' bullet list. Mm-hmm. So that'll go pretty quick. All right, you ready? Ready as ever. So I'm covering Dolores Huerta today. Oh my God. Please tell me we haven't covered No, okay. I, we haven't, but I know the name. Okay, I was like every I was telling Emily right before this, I'm like literally every time I do research, because we've covered so many women and like, you know, there's a lot of echoes of different like stories. Like literally every time I do research, I'm like, have we covered this woman yet? I I have seen her on lists. She's still alive. And considered covering her in the past. Because I just apparently to I wanna go two for two on covering people that are alive and maybe screwing myself over. That's okay. That's okay. You know, Dolores, you're a wonderful woman, I'm she sure, is. and uh hopefully very forgiving. <laughs> so as some people will know that there's a whole day dedicated in March, at the end of March, to Cesar Chavez. Oh, I did not know that. But apparently there is. But what about the woman who worked with him to co-found the National Farm Workers Association? That is Dolores, and this is her story. So Dolores was born on April 10th, 1930, in a small mining town in New Mexico. She is the second child and only daughter of Juan Fernandez and Alicia Chavez. Uh, Juan was um, from a Mexican immigrant family, but was born in New Mexico Mm -hmm. um, and worked as a coal miner. Later, he would join the migrant labor force and harvest beets throughout Colorado, Nebraska, and Wyoming. Um, and Dolores, in her younger years, would often hear her father tell stories about union um, union organizing the migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Her parents would divorce when she was very young, and after that, because of her father's traveling, she would rarely see him, unfortunately. yeah. So her mother, Alicia, raised Dolores and her two brothers in Central California in a farm-working community, she was known for her kind. Dolores, Dolores' mother, Alicia, was known for her kindness. Okay, okay. We're not to Dolores yet. Dolores is still a child. Okay, I, I was Angle getting confused, so thank you. <laughs> so Alicia was known for her kindness and compassion towards others and was active in, in community affairs, multiple civil, civic organizations, and the church. She encouraged the cultural diversity that was a natural part of her children's upbringing in this kind of town. You know, like... 
California's kind of known to have like particularly strong like yeah you know mixing it, of cultures there's a lot of there's a lot of like latin influence yeah asian influence Spanish european influence. influence yeah mexican influence and her mom very much encouraged that you know she's mm-hmm. like yes go out you know learn about other cultures um, she was also a businesswoman and owned a restaurant as well as a 70-room hotel where she would welcome low-wage workers and farm worker families at affordable prices and sometimes give them free housing if she knew they couldn't afford it. Oh, that's awesome. Right? So Dolores was obviously inspired by her mother to advocate for farm workers later in her life. And in her interview, Dolores stated, quote, The dominant person in my life is my mother. She was a very intelligent woman and a very gentle woman. Aw. It sounds like it. Right. And what what a strong person to be raising three children on her own while running a business and also then having enough compassion to be like a restaurant. I'm gonna help you out here. Like I I get you're struggling like. Right. Yeah. So watching her mother's generous actions throughout her childhood really provided Dolores with a strong foundation for her own views later in life, which were very nonviolent and strongly spiritual. In, in, a, in the same interview as the previous quote, she said, quote, when we talk about spiritual forces, I think that Hispanic women are more familiar with spiritual forces. We know what fasting is, and that is a part of our culture. We know what re- relationships are, and we know what sacrifice is. It's cool. It, that sounds very much like her mother and kind of what her mother embodied. Right. Um. So Dolores's community activism herself began when she was only a student still in high school. She was active in numerous school clubs and was a majorette as well as a dedicated member of the Girl Scouts until age 18. Oh, nice. At which point they kind of like kick you out and they're like, you're too old. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I'm just going to say this right now, but to like go through the whole Girl Scout I mean, you can process, become like a mentor after you're 18. But Yeah. But what, what I'm saying is like, I feel like Girl Scouts is something that you do when you're young. Oh, I did and it in middle school. You kind of... Not grow out of it because, like, like you said, there, there's like a whole cycle you can be in until you're 18, and then there's other stuff you can do beyond that. But I don't know. Like, I guess my experience was I did it when I was uh, in elementary school, yep. and then our troop kind of dissolved, yep. and I never went back. Like, I, I got my green vest, and I think that's as far as I went. But I think you can get like a blue one. I did a few summers of. They called it caddying, but like basically being a camp counselor mm-hmm. um, when I was, I think when I was like a freshman in high school. But yeah, like beyond that, basically once I hit high school, I was done with it. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I, I enjoyed Girl Scouts, but unfortunately a lot of my, ex- my memories are about like all of us girls like being catty and bitchy and awful to each other. We weren't too bad, but we were. We were a bunch of Catholic school girls. I mean, we were, out for we blood. were too. Like, <laughs> and there was definitely like a divide between us because there was like the three or four of us that weren't from like the super rich families. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, everyone else was from like the super rich families. So, like, of course, everything was always at their house because they had the big houses and the pools. And yeah. The- there was just like a lot of bullying and shit going on. And, oh. Anyways. Sorry. Why did I have to make this about my Girl Scout trauma? Because we talked about it. Yes. Um, <laughs> So Dolores also had trauma. Oh, well, not trauma, trauma, but like she also had a hard time in school. She recalls a school teacher accusing her of stealing another student's work. And as a, as a result of that, giving her an unfair grade, 
Um, thinking back on it, she really thinks that it was ra- uh, rooted in racial bias. I was going to say, that's actual trauma. That's right. not Girl Scout bullying <laughs> exactly. bullshit. Um, this is racially she, charged discrimination. Exactly. She also experienced a lot of marginalization during childhood and in her schoolhood um, years because she was of Hispanic descendant. You know, like, yeah. she was born in America. She's an American citizen, so were her parents. But she has that Hispanic heritage on both sides, so she, you know... She very much looks like a Hispanic she, she American. She stood out, which yeah. is unfortunate because it sounded like where they were living was very diverse. And uh, unfortunately, it's like, ah, just because it's diverse doesn't mean there aren't still exactly assholes in these preconceived ideas, especially I, what decade are we in? Is this the, the like, 1930s? 19- oh, well, we might be in the 1940s, 1950s now. Well, yeah, still not not great. The mid the mid the mid 20th century. Well, and there's also, there's this concept of if you're a a Hispanic or Latinx person and you have a fair complexion, you can like quote unquote pass and kind of have that, uh, that benefit of white privilege because people can't look at you and identify you as heritage. Yep. Exactly. So because she had all these experiences, uh, Dolores grew up with the belief that society needed to be changed. Good for her. (laughs) She would go on to attend college at the University of Pacific Stockton College, um, where she earned a provisional teaching credential, which I'm assuming they there was some bullshit couldn't be, you know, actually given a degree thing, I'm assuming. Um, But she after so after she got her teaching credentials she would go on to teach elementary school for a little while but she would later leave her job and begin a lifelong crusade to correct economic justice this this was her quote i couldn't find a year for it but it kind of sounds like why she left her school so it says quote i couldn't tolerate seeing kids come to class hungry and needing shoes i thought i could do more by organizing the farm workers than by trying to teach their hungry children that's an excellent point and I think I think we need people who care and we need those helpers everywhere. But I love she's like, I want to make sure these kids, when they get to school, are taken care of so then they can actually learn. Because I had such a hard time paying attention in school, like just being tired all the time. Right. Can you imagine if you're like starving and you don't even have proper clothes? Right. Like, exactly. my God. Um. By only the age of 25, Dolores was a lobbyist in Sacramento for the Stockton Community Service Organization and trained people in their grassroots campaign. Mm -hmm. This foundation was later changed to an affiliated agricultural workers organization. And in an interview, Dolores talks about why she wanted to help the farm workers. She says she was able to get an inside look at how farm workers were living, and they were by far the most poverty-stricken workers in the area. She explained that farm workers were being paid little to nothing. They had no rights. They slept on fo- floors. Their furniture was wooden boxes. And a lot of them didn't have clean water, access to bathrooms, and would work from sunrise to sundown. Especially the, like the migrant workers in yeah, particular. Yeah, they're being completely taken advantage of. Right. And they weren't. a lot of times they weren't given any breaks. And these workers would migrate from place to place and travel to where the crops were in season, season meaning any children traveling with them wouldn't receive a proper education and a lot of times would end up working in the fields with their parents. She explained that many women were often sexually assaulted by the landowners and were, were afraid to speak up because their families needed the jobs. Yep. She also explained that many of these landowners would justify themselves by saying, quote, we are doing the farm workers and the public a favor by giving these people jobs. Um, She explained that many of the landowners that had these migrant workers um, working for them a lot of times received their land and water for free 
and also expected their labor for free. She saw the conditions these people were living in, shanty towns and squalor, and she, she joined the organization to do what she could. So in in the movie La Bamba about Richie Valance, he lives in an environment like that. He lives in one of these like migrant worker shanty towns. And yeah, the conditions are deplorable and there's not a lot of opportunities for advancement or to escape. You you know, it's not even like, oh, I'm going to raise enough money and then I'll I'll buy a house and I'll do this. Like it's really hard to get out. And yeah. then yeah, for your children to receive an education and that almost perpetuates that mm-hmm. sense of servitude, like subservience. I uh there's a StoryCorps video. Uh I think we've talked about StoryCorps before. It's like by NPR yeah, and yep. the interview people and there's this woman um she grew up as a migrant worker and there was a bookmobile that came to the camp one day and she went on and she's looking at all these books and the librarian on the bookmobile is like, well, you know, what are you interested in? And she had heard about like, I can't read. Well, I think she, I think she could read some, you know, but she didn't have access to books because they're heavy. You can't carry them with you. Mm -hmm. So she told him what she was interested in. He gave her a bunch of books and she just devoured them. But then she probably had to leave them behind when her family left. Well, it was the bookmobile. You just oh, so borrow you them. them. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and it was these books that gave her a window into the rest of the world outside of these migrant camps where the world is so small and so hard. And that's what she said. That's what gave her the courage to eventually leave. She was able to get an education. She became a that's fucking great. librarian. Yeah. I'm like, honey, I love you. But like, can you imagine children growing up in that kind of environment? It's it's heartbreaking. Right. Um, so Dolores continued obviously to kind of champion these causes and she would go on with a a man named Fred Cross to co-found an organization, uh, co-found and organized the Stockton chapter of the community service organization or CSO. Like you'll, you'll see those around Mm -hmm. your areas, CSOs. Um, and this one in particular fought for the economic improvements of Latino, Mexican and Chicano migrant farm workers. Um, a lot of times Ross would actually delegate huge responsibilities to her because she was so like, not because he was being an asshole, yeah. but because she was so like dedicated and she was like, give me anything. Like, I just want to help these people. She could handle it. And he knew that she was capable of handling it. And not only that is she could deliver the messages of this organization in Spanish and in English. So like she could reach more people Especially these like migrant workers, some of them probably only spoke Spanish. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he went on to say, um, so they would go door to door and field the field, kind of like organizing people. And he went on to say, as quote, as she assumed responsibilities and stance that were traditionally held by white males, she encountered a lot of criticism based on both her gender and ethnic stereotype. Like, so he's like, I supported her, but unfortunately, like there was still this barrier, mm-hmm. both gender and racially. This is why feminism needs to be intersectional. Right. Uh, Luckily, that didn't stop her. And she would go um, about five years later, she would go on to co-found the Agricultural Workers Association, which set up voter registration drives and pressed local governments um, into working on improvements for like migrant worker camps. So they weren't just shanty towns. Yeah. Uh, You know, making sure they had like clean water access and bathrooms and they weren't. Yeah. Just sleeping on cardboard boxes. Um, And then two years after that, she would um, go on with Cesar Chavez to find to fund the National Farm Workers Association, 
um, which would later become the United Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. It's a long word. <laughs> um, and she, Dolores, was the only woman to ever sit on that board of the UFW, which is what it became known as, um, until 2018. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that was pretty bad. Wait, is it because she stepped down in 2018 or because another woman another joined? Another woman joined. Okay. <laughs> I don't actually know if she stepped down, but I guess we'll get to that. It might be later. Yep. Like I said, it's a lot of notes. <laughs> it's kind of fun when your notes are a surprise to you too. Like, oh, I wrote these so long ago and I, I oh, cool. Well, and <laughs> this I was, happens. I've had this story kind of in my back pocket for like almost a month because I like started the notes, but then I was like, oh, this is too long. And like, we kept like having like, where we're like, oh, we don't have a lot of time to record. Let's just do short stories. Yeah. And that happened twice. And so I'm like, I had like half my notes written. So yeah, like the beginning of my notes, I'm like, what, what happened again? <laughs> um, okay. So. Caesar and Dolores quickly realized that obviously they shared this common goal that, and so that's why they formed the National Farm Workers Association. And um, in 1962, the CSO would actually turn down Cesar Chavez's request um, as their president of this other one to organize the farm workers. So like, because the CSO is that like community group and he was just like, hey, let's organize like the workers in this area. And they were like, no. And so both Caesar and Dolores resigned from the CSO and they were like, if you're not going to like, if you're not going to work with us to help unionize the farmer, like we're not going to work with you. Yeah. So they both left and, you know, began working at this National Farmers Association, which would later um, merge with the AWO, which was the Agricultural Workers Organization to become the the UFW, which I mentioned, the United mm-hmm. Farm Workers Organizing. <laughs> Jesus. There's a lot of acronyms. <laughs> um, and they would go on to say, Dolores's organization skills were essential to the growth of our organization. So that's pretty cool. Like she, They were like, no, she was super on the ball, guys. Um, and they, the UFO house, the original one, um, was located in the city of Los Angeles. So like they started in a big city. Yeah. So early on, Dolores advocated for um, the entire family's participation in this movement. She was like, this isn't just about the workers. This is about everyone. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't just the men that were out in the field most of the time. It was the men, the women, and the children all together out in the fields, picking, thinning, hoeing. You know, like, it was a family affair. And so she's like, we can't just have the men campaigning for this because it's not just the men that are involved well and even if it was just the men in the fields like you said the women are being victimized by the landowners the children are getting education are being victimized yeah like it it affects everyone exactly regardless of the level of work they're contributing right and so um dolores's approach was very like nonviolent because she's like everyone's involved like we you know, if we're having children and women and everyone participate, like we, we can't have violent protests, which is fine. And for her, it wasn't only a philosophy. Like she wasn't like, you know, nonviolence is my philosophy that like for her, it was the necessary approach to providing safety for these families. Mm-hmm. Um, and her life and safety and, and those around her were in jeopardy, in jeopardy on multiple times. And I'll, I'll mention some of those later. And um, she viewed uh, I couldn't find a lot of information on it, but she said at one point the greatest sacrifice to the movement were the, were the five martyrs that she knew personally, but I couldn't find, like, who she thought those were. Oh. But, like, so she was like, I know people that have given their lives for this cause, and I, I'm wondering if maybe they were just migrant workers that, like, 
died in the field or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but there's got to be way more than that. Like, well, exactly. But yeah, she was like, I know like five people that died for this movement, like personally that, mm-hmm. you know, that she was like, no. So in 1965, Dolores would direct the UFW's national boycott during the Delano grape strike, which um, started really taking the plight of these farm workers to the consumers. You know, like it started affecting, you know, the chain of commerce. Yeah, yeah. And so like it really became known and she led the organization um, not only advocating for, in this case, and for farm workers, right, but also for consumer rights. Like to, for so people would know like, this is where your shit's coming from. Right, right. You know, and this boycott resulted in the um, entire California um, table grape industry signing a three-year collective bargaining agreement with the UFW workers in 1970. Oh, my God. So Dolores was getting shit done. That's incredible. She would also go on to negotiate a private contract between the UFW and the Chanelli Wine Company. Um, making it the first time that farm workers were able to effectively bargain with an agricultural enterprise. Good God. Right? How have I never heard of, like, all of this? I know. (laughs) In addition to organizing those, Dolores was also active in lobbying for several laws to improve the the, um, farm workers. I I have several bitching bullet lists, and this this is one of them, because instead of, like, just being, like, talking it all out, so there were several laws. The first one was... A bill to permit Spanish-speaking people to take the California's driver's exam in Spanish. Legislation to repeal. Wait, wait. It was allowing Spanish-speaking people to, to take the take... driver's exam in Spanish. Oh, I thought you said it was preventing them. No, permit. Permitting. Permitting. Okay. So, okay. You, you speak Spanish. You want to take the driver's test. I'm like, we only have this in English. Fuck off. Right. Wow. Um, so the next one was repealing the... Bu- Bracero Act. So the Bracero Act um, was a series of laws and agreements with um, the Mexican Farm Labor Association. And this was basically like, it basically was just bad. Like it, it agreed to certain things, but like in a way that it didn't translate well, like as it got older, because it was initiated in 1942 and it was basically like, it, it guaranteed decent living conditions, which that one was good, but it only like guaranteed them 30 cents an hour and like stuff like that. So they were like, no, like we need to repeal this and get better, you know, better shit in, in, um, yeah, it was, it was like, it was a half step in the right direction, yeah. but it wasn't, and it was super like basic, you know, it yeah. was just like, oh yeah, you need to be able to, you know, provide them a tent. Jesus Christ. Exactly. So like, she was like, okay, we need to repeal that. And then she. Um, wanted to extend the federal um, program aid to families with dependent children to California farm workers. So it's kind of like um, just federal aid. Yeah. Um, And then she also advocated for the California Agricultural Laborers Relations Act, which um, was basically just kind of a new form of like what I'm trying to figure out like how to like, it was like a, basically collective bargaining for farm workers in the okay. U.S. You know, it was, it was um, the way they, the way the Wikipedia said, I think was like ensure peace in the agricultural fields by guaranteeing justice. So basically like if something happens, like if your wife gets assaulted, you can go to the police and something will be done about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, 
And also, like, you have a bargaining chip. Like, you know, you're not just. I can't believe this shit had to be put on. And the that was period. 1975. Jesus Christ. So, as an advocate for farm workers' rights, Dolores was arrested 22 times for, <laughs> for participating in nonviolent civil disobedience activities and strikes. Not even surprised. And I'm sure that's like minimum. Because yeah. I'm sure there were shit that happened where they like arrested her and then they were like, yeah, you're free to go. You know, like. Yeah. Um, she still remains active. She is still alive. She still remains active in progressive causes and serves on the board of People for the American Way, Consumer Federation of California, and the Feminist Majority Foundation. So the three, she's 91 years old and she's still serving on at least three things. May we all be that spry and active when we're in our 90s. I hope so. So in 1968, Dolores would stand beside Robert F. Kennedy on the speaker's platform at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles when he delivered a victory statement to his political supporters shortly after winning the California Democratic presidential primary election only moments after the candidate finished his speech kennedy and five others were wounded by gunfire inside the hotel's kitchen pantry this is where kennedy would die from his gunshot wounds oh my god the second you say ambassador hotel i'm like no yeah so no. She, was, she was with kennedy like when he was shot oh my god it reminds me of um I'm so sorry, I can't remember her name. The woman that you covered who was standing next to Malcolm X when he was... Holding Malcolm X when holding he died. When he, holding him when he died, yeah. I know, I can't remember. I'm so bad at names, guys. I'm sorry. But yeah, like, isn't that insane? That is wild. So, as I meant... So, she kept fighting. There's a huge time gap now because we're going from... Um, we're skipping, like, 20, 20 years in the future, basically. Because we're going from <laughs> 1968 to... 1988. Okay. So we're skipping 20 years. Um, so at the age of 58 years old, we're skipping, you know, she's well I, into her adulthood. You know now. what? Like in those 20 years, just insert a montage of, of her being a badass. Done. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this is in front of the St. Francis Hotel in Union Square. Dolores was severely beaten by a San Francisco police officer named Frank Achim during a peaceful and lawful protest of the policies and platform of the then candidate for president, George H.W. Bush. The baton beating caused significant internal injuries to her torso, re- resulting in several broken ribs and requiring the removal of her spleen in an emergency surgery. Oh my God. This beating was caught on videotape and broadcast <gasps> widely on local television. Okay. Yep. I, I just want to point out, I feel like... Police brutality against people of color being caught on video. We see it much more now. Right. At that time, though. That had to be huge. Well, I, I the mean, fact it was that like. It actually got showed on local television surprises me because I felt like back then they kind of like, they were like, we're just not going to talk about it. Well, it, it happens, was, but we're not going to talk about it. It was really easy for people to deny the truth of these racially charged beatings because there was no documentation. It was just, you know, well, who am I going to believe? You or the police who I've been, you know, conditioned to trust and hold above exactly. all else. And it was like with the with the Rodney King beating, that got caught on video. And that is one of the reasons it was such a big deal and elicited such a reaction. So the fact that this was caught on video for that time, huge. And people were not seeing that the way we do today. Yeah. Like what a what a huge thing. I was right? I was gonna say momentous, but that what a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Dolores would go on to win a large um settlement judgment against the SFPD and the city of San Francisco for the attack. Thank God. What happened to the officer? Uh, I didn't look into it. Um 
However, the proceeds that she got from winning that settlement, she used to benefit the farm workers that she's that she helps. Dolores, right, honey. Also, as a result of this assault and the and the subsequent suit against them, the SFPD um, was pressured to change its crowd control policies and uh, process officer di- and pr- its process of officer discipline. So I'm guessing not nothing happened, but probably not. They definitely like this forced them to change their ways. Thank God, although. It's kind of gone back. I, you know, it, it's not like anything is perfect right now, but it's... Right. Better-ish? Good to see that. Good, good to see that they're like, oh, shit. Right. So Dolores' recovery took a long time. But afterward, or during it, she took a leave of absence from the union to focus on women's rights and even after it, too. Um, Once she recovered enough, she traversed the country for two years on behalf of a movement called Feminist Majorities, Feminization of Power, 50-50 by the year 2000. And that was their campaign name. This encouraged Latinas to run for office. That's awesome. But also women in general. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's like we talk about. There's this weird weird hierarchy in marginalized communities where, oh, if you're a white woman, you have you you actually do have more power and privilege than a woman of color. Right. You know? Yeah. So this campaign resulted in a significant increase in the number of women representatives elected at the local, state, and federal levels. That's so fucking awesome. Right. She also served as the national chair of the 21st Century Party, which was founded in 1992 on the principles that women should make up 52% of parties candidates and that officers must reflect the ethnic diversity of the nation. So that's what that party is made up of, which I think is great. Um, Dolores... um, Became president of the Dolores Huerta Foundation, obviously. Like she, <laughs> she founded her own foundation as the president. She founded it in 2002. It is a 501c3 company. I don't know what that means. It's a nonprofit. Yeah. yeah. So it says, quote, community benefit organization that organizes at the grassroots level, engaging and developing natural leaders. DHF creates leadership opportunities for community organizing, leadership development, civic engagement, and policy advocacy in the following areas health and environment, education and youth development, and economic development. You know what's really cool? You're talking about her working with these organizations in effort to get more diverse people involved in politics. And to have, yeah, our leadership reflect the actual makeup of our country. Because if you try to into it like what our country looks like just based on our leadership it would be very one side be very male very monochromatic right you know and so it's not about like oh instead of these kinds of people being in power these people should be in power it's like ah we should just break down these barriers right. that make it, like it so one-sided everyone can be in power exactly matter. and we've been seeing like it feels like every election there's this wave of firsts mm-hmm. the first trans woman the first black person the first you know all this stuff and I'm glad she's still alive because she's back in the 90s like doing it and right. we're seeing so much more of it right so her foundation got started when she received a $100,000 Puffin slash Nation Prize for Creative Citizenship. So she won $100,000 and she was like, I'm going to create my own foundation. Good for her. Her youngest daughter, Camilla Chavez, um, is the current executive director at the foundation. So it's stayed in the, stayed in the family. Wait, did 
Did she marry Caesar? Sh- okay. She, I don't think she ever married. Okay. Okay. Well, but she her, must have at some point. Camilla married someone with the last name Chavez. Let me double check. No, I don't think she married Caesar Chavez. I, that's why I was like, oh, uh, I'm pretty, pretty sure that didn't happen. <laughs> it It's interesting because it lists her children, but it does not list a husband. Oh, no. Partner. Richard Chavez. Okay. Maybe it's Caesar's brother. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't think speculating. I'm going to say, I don't think Chavez is no, a, it's, an her, uncommon her name. Her mother's last name was Chavez. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's not you know. exactly an uncommon last name. So she got she had gotten uh, married twice. And then she has a partner named Richard Chavez and she has 11 children. Damn. Yep. Anyways. So she, like I said, her... Her youngest daughter, Camilla, is the current executive director at the foundation, and the primary purpose is to weave in movements such as women's rights, LGBTQ rights, immigrant rights, labor rights, and civil rights into an individual thread. Intersectionality! Yeah! I love, I, I also love that, you know, Dolores comes from a generation where a lot a lot of people from that generation kind of get a pass, or, oh, you, you grew up in a different time, and she's like, no, all of these Right. aspects are important we can't be you can't be homophobic and for equal rights you can't be a feminist and right. not include trans women you can't be for you know feminism and not include women of color or, or in, and the issues that they face like it all has to be one because it all weaves in, in and out of each other and she's absolutely right they're all strands in one thread they really are oh i love her so DHF and Dolores have obviously several like programs that they run. Most of them are in um, like involve, you know, active engagement. So their mm-hmm. civic engagement programs focuses on the voting rights. They do protests, petitions, signatures. They work on re- revising um, property tax loopholes and Proposition 13 was one of their big like things that they advocated for. They also encourage voters to vote at the California primary elections and to educate voters on federal issues such as tax cuts and jobs acts and like the White House budget and stuff, Mm -hmm. which is great. They have a youth vote campaign um, where where they have been able to reach out to 1,055 contacts and 809 young voters. And they have secured millions of dollars for local infrastructure, such as new sewer connections, streetlights, sidewalks, and gutters in Lamont and Weed Patch, which are like poorer areas. Yeah. Um, they were also one of the plaintiffs in the suit against Kern High School District, alleging that African-American and Latino students were unfairly targeted in disciplinary actions. Mm-hmm. As part of this settlement, the district provides positive behavioral intervention and support training to all of its staff members. Good. Right. Um, Dolores currently holds about 15 honorary doctorates. Good God. Minimum. I, so I don't list those in my bitching bullet list later. I was just like, nope, we're just going to do that because it's, and it's a lot of like the big name schools that you would assume. Yeah. Um, I, in November, on November 17th, 2015. So just, you know, six years and I 10 almost, days ago. I almost said five years ago. I almost did too. That's why <laughs> that I paused. Not, um, Dolores was disappointed. Bestowed the highest decoration a foreign national can receive from the country of Mexico for her years of service helping the Mexican community in the United States fight for equal pay, dignity in the workplace, and fair employment practices. That's amazing. She also received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. Damn right she did. On May 29th, 2012, at 89 years old, Dolores, um, well actually she's 91 now, so at 91 years old, 
She continues to work tirelessly developing leaders and advocating for the working poor women and children. Um, As founder and president, she travels across of, you know, DHF, the Dolores Huerta Foundation. She travels across the country engaging in campaigns and influence legislation that supports equality and defends civil rights. And she often speaks to students and organizations about issues of social justice and public policy. So a lot of the times when she's been um, awarded the honorary doctorate, she'll speak to the graduating class Mm -hmm. at that school, which I think is cool. There are thousands of working poor immigrants in the United States still particularly in the agriculture-rich valley of San Joaquin Valley of California. They are unfamiliar with laws and agencies that can protect them or benefits that they are entitled to. They are still often preyed upon by individuals who take advantage of them, and they often feel hopeless and unable to remedy their situations. Dolores still goes and teaches these individuals that they have personal power that needs to be coupled with responsibility and cooperation to create the changes needed to improve their lives. Though, you know, the self-care and holding people responsible is sadly rarely practiced today because it is tedious and time-consuming and people don't want to deal with it, the results are long-lasting. And while people are in the process of building organizations, they are learning lessons they will never forget and the transformative roots are planted. The fruit is the leadership that is developed and the permanent changes in the community. In other words, this is how grassroots democracy works. My God. So... I'm on to my bitchin' bullet list of various honors and awards. Yes, (laughs) bring it on. So she has previously served on the board of directors of the Equality California. She was named one of the three most important women of the year of 1997 by Miss Magazine. She was an inaugural recipient of Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Human Rights in 1998. Wow. Uh, In 1998, she also won the Ladies Home Journal, like, she was on their list of 100 most important women of the 20th century. This list also included people such as Mother Teresa, Margaret Thatcher, and Rosa Parks. You know, it's interesting. I Mother Teresa has kind of like a... Yeah, it's a weird... She, 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 it's coming out more that she's a bit more of a complex figure than we've given her credit in the past. <laughs> I mean, she did do a lot of good stuff, though. Yeah. In 2008, she received the Maggie Award, which is the highest honor of the Planned Parenthood Federation, which is in tribute of their founder, Margaret Sanger. She received the um, United Neighborhood Centers of America's highest individual honors, which is named the Jane Addams Distinguished Leader Award. I would just like to say I like that a lot of these awards are named after women. Yeah. Um, She was awarded the UCLA Medal, which is UCLA's highest honor. Jeez. So that's huge. Dolores was also honored by the California State University with the Presidential Medallion, which is its highest honor. There are multiple schools in California and Oklahoma, as well as like Texas and Colorado and like states kind of that probably have a large migrant worker population and mm-hmm. that have um, schools named after Dolores. So we're not going to, I'm not going to name all of those guys. That would be like <laughs> its own bitching bullet list. Dolores Huerta School. There the is <laughs> a mural in Pitzer College in Claremont, California. If we have anyone that lives near there that wants to go take a picture, because there's a big mural in the front of Holden Hall that's dedicated to her, which is cool. Um, she was the speaker at the first and 10th Cesar Chavez convocation, which is just like a big celebration, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2013, Dolores received the annual award for greatest public service benefiting the disadvantaged. Um, which is part of the Jefferson Awards. In 2018, California Governor Jerry Brown signed into law AB 2455, 
designating April 10th of each year as Dolores Huerta Day <gasps> in California. I don't care. I'm adding it to the calendar. You said April 10th? April 10th. April 10th, Dolores Huerta Day. Everyone um, mark your calendars. Washington Governor Jay Inslee followed a year later designating April 10th Dolores Huerta Day in Washington as well. Come on, Minnesota. No, it's I, it's national. Yeah, We're right. done here. Um, <laughs> I decree it. Asteroid 6849 is named Dolores Huerta. One word, because I'm pretty sure you can't name an asteroid multiple words. So it's, it's her name. Yeah, yeah. Word. They're all like um, one. It was discovered by an American astronomer named Eleanor Helen and Schlelt bus at the um, at an observatory in 1979 and was named in her honor the official naming went through in 2019 um can you okay so obviously she's still alive can you imagine being alive and being like can you imagine waiting 40 years for the naming like they, they like <laughs> proposed this name and it took them 40 years to be like yeah i wonder if it's just because they have to like I wonder if they have to like verify the asteroid and make sure it's not named already and yeah but know. i'm just like can you imagine being like, yeah, I have an asteroid named after me. No big deal. That would be so cool. <laughs> like, and that is probably so low on the list of like her cocktail party conversation of like, right? well, you know, so, I, I bet she doesn't even bring stuff like that yeah, up. No, probably not. She's way too chill. Um, just last year, she actually received the Ripple of Hope Award from the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights. That's awesome. That is the end of my bitch and bullet list. It's, she, I mean, it's not over. She's still alive. So she is, yeah. she is she's only 91. She's got plenty to of time to do continued, shit. To be continued, ellipses. Okay, you know those like icebreakers where it's like you say your name, where you're from, and I one interesting fact about yourself? I hate those. What the fuck would she podcast. even choose? What the fuck would she even choose? She There's just, so she much. She just like whips out a list and she's like, no, I already said that one. No, I already, let's go this one. I haven't said this yeah. one yet. I haven't said this one in a while. I have an asteroid named after me. What? Yeah. Whatever. And it's fine. <laughs> Why? I well, have, I have 15 different honorary doctorates. Which school do you want to know about? Yeah. Oh my goodness. That that's so incredible. And I've I've heard her name like from these lists that we've covered, but she's still alive. She's still working and I'm like She's still doing shit. Why yeah. am I not hearing more about her in like I know, it's sad. The daily news. I don't know. It's probably cuz we don't we're not exactly an area that has a migrant worker population. And I kind of wonder if that's why, because it kind of sounds like she sticks to, you know, like California, like those. The, yeah, but the, still she, I mean. I think you'd hear about her. I know. She's a nationally recognized figure. Not even just nationally, like internationally. Intergalactically. Yeah. Aliens get that list of well, the asteroids are called and like, oh, hey, watch out. Dolores Huerta is flying around here somewhere. Don't right? let her hit your windshield. <laughs> Yeah, she's a certified badass, 100%. Good grief. That is amazing. Well, thank you for sharing the story of Dolores, living certified badass. Good God. I, you know, sometimes we cover these women and they've done so much and I'm like, I'm exhausted hearing what they've done. I'm like, who has the time? Well, and she's still like out there doing shit. She's 91 years old. What I'm does like, her planner look like? <laughs> It's <laughs> it just says rule the world like every day. Yeah, yeah. Be a bad bitch. Be a bad bitch. Done, done, done. Complete. Uh so today I am actually taking a listener suggestion from friend of the podcast Tierney. What's up, Tierney? Who invited Woo-woo. me to bitch giving, <laughs> which was amazing. And uh I'm covering I'm covering this woman partially because she has been in the news recently. So today I am covering Julia Cabance. Hmm. 
I do not know who that is, so you, I'm excited. I had no idea who she was either, but she is a liver of life. So, Much like Dolores. Yes. So Julia Cabance was born on the Prairie Band uh, Potawatomi Reservation in Jackson County, Kansas mm. on August 10th, 1910. And she was the 11th of 12 children. She was actually named after her older sister, Julia, who died at only seven years old. Oh, no. So we had a previous story like that, that someone was named after a sibling. That yeah, they died. like reused the name. I thought that was kind of sweet. Uh, not not the not the seven year old. Yeah, no, 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 but the no, name. no, no, no. <laughs> Let me just be very clear. Her parents, Frank and Mary, owned a farm on the reservation, reservation, which Julia grew up working on. She said of her family's farm, quote, most Indians at the time had to go to the association to get permission to farm their land. My father said, I'm not going to do that. It's my land. Fuck yeah. That's a bad bitch move right there. Yeah, where it's it like, I'm sorry, it's my land. I'm going to do what I'm I want. A, I'm going to do it. <laughs> like, what do you mean I have to ask permission to farm the land that I, I own yeah. after it was all stolen from me? She attended Haskell Indian Nations University, formerly known as Haskell Institute. Then later, she attended the University of Kansas. Hmm. However, she only spent one semester at the University of Kansas because she couldn't afford to continue her education. That always really bums me out because the idea that someone wants to pursue an education and finances are the barrier to that. I'm like, how how is that still a thing? How is that in the United States, that is still a thing? Right. I agree. When the United States entered World War II, civilians did their part for the war effort, including collecting scrap metal, buying war bonds, and growing victory gardens, which I learned produced 60% of the produce Americans consumed during the war. So during World, World War II, over half of the produce that Americans were consuming, they grew on their own. I'm like... Good God. That's insane. <laughs> that's that's wild to me. And I don't know, uh, I'm getting a little off track, but people like w- with the pandemic and kind of people being expected to wear masks and do their part to keep themselves and each other safe and this overwhelming resentment for those efforts I'm like, you know what we did in World War II though, right? Right. We did way more. And along with this, there were mandatory rationings of certain items. So it wasn't just like, oh, you want to be a cool patriotic person, grow your own food. It's like, no, this is a mandatory ration. The government's telling you you can only have so much of this. And they also actively encouraged this with slogans and propaganda that read like, I'm patriotic as can be and ration points won't worry me. And use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without catchy yeah, yeah that it, last it was, one yeah it was all about you know make do with what you have because that's make all it last have. because everything else needs to go towards this war effort and I'm like where did we kind of lose that like let's come together as a community to take care of each other kind of feeling Julia remembered rationing and these other efforts towards the beginning of the war but was looking to do something more to serve her country in March of 1943 Julia joined the women's army corps or WAC oh. WAC Whack. I like that. The whack offered women their first opportunity to join the United States Army in an official capacity in roles as other than nurses. So they, before, women could be members of the Army if they were a nurse. Now they were able to join in capacities outside of that. 
While women have obviously served in the U.S. Army in non-nursing roles in the past, whether as soldiers in disguise, spies, or in communications, they weren't officially recognized as members of the military. For example, switchboard operators during World War I, also known as Hello Girls, operated as part of the U.S. Army Signal Corps, and they were issued military uniforms and even took the Army oath. Hmm. Despite this, they were considered civilian employees. And then stay tuned because I'm definitely going to be doing a Hursary Happenings on the Hello Girls. I saw yeah. a video on them a while ago. I was like, this is amazing. And spoiler, they had to fight l- like decades later for official recognition from oh, the military. That's like, bullshit. We were here. We did the thing. Like, why are you ignoring us? WAC members operated in a number of different areas in the Army, including in code breaking, which I yes. learned because I just finished Code Girls. And they actually call them wax. Like the the people in the women's army corps, I know, they but call them wax. Every single time you say whack, I just yep. chuckle. <laughs> the Navy's version were the waves. And yes! I'm like, oh man, that is they nailed that fucking acronym. Yeah, Primarily, uh, they were meant to fill positions of men who had been sent overseas to fight. And this was a huge opportunity for women to advance socially, be financially independent, travel and serve their country because there is this huge swell of like patriotic duty and women were being encouraged to join to do their part. Mm -hmm. Many women who joined the army and other branches of the military had friends and family serving on the front lines and wanted to do their part of the war effort. They're like, I'm doing this here to support my brother, my father, my boyfriend, my childhood friend who's overseas fighting. And especially like the the code girls who are doing all the code breaking, like they were sometimes getting news of ships and deployments and companies where they're like, I know people in that group. I know people on that ship. And they saved lives. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes they are the first ones to get the news that something really horrible had happened, oh, though. Can you imagine? And then you just have to keep working. You're like, you don't know if your brother is alive or dead. You know his ship was sunk, and you just got to keep breaking codes. So even though women were being encouraged to join, you know, the wax, the waves, and all those other areas, it didn't mean that they were welcome with open arms because sexism doesn't take a break for war. Yay, sexism. (laughs) Yay. After enlisting, Julia was assigned with other women uh, to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, or maybe it's Leavenworth. I think it's Leavenworth. I think you're right. It's L E A V E N. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's whatever the hell I say it is because I'm telling the you're story. You're telling the story. <laughs> uh, so this was in Kansas to perform office jobs. Julia recalled the men's reaction to women joining their ranks. Quote, they said, we were just pulled in. We had no choice. You just walk in because you wanted to be here. They rubbed it in all the time. I told them, well, there is such a thing as patriotism. I said, the country's at war. I said, everybody needs to help. Yeah. Which it's like, what? A, first of all, bravo, Julia, because that's exactly it. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Should I just go home and do nothing? Fuck you. I'm trying to be like, like patriarch and help, help our country. And you can't put your sexism aside for five goddamn minutes. God damn. Fuck you. Not everyone showed animosity to the women, however. Julia had a sergeant major tell her once that he liked hiring women because, quote, I can get more work out of one whack than three lazy GIs. I totally thought it was going to be, I was waiting for like a sexist comment, like, oh, they're they're prettier to look at or something. No, that's great though. But it's true because like guys were like, oh, whatever, I have a job. It's not hard for me to find a job. Whereas women are like, 
no, like I want to work. I want to be appreciated. There was like an extra level of pressure because the women were outsiders. They also knew this was a really wonderful opportunity. So they weren't tartar. This is obviously not a mass reflection of, oh, the men in the army didn't do shit. That's obviously not true. But these women were uh, highly motivated Mm -hmm. because a lot of them did have an education. They were looking for greater opportunities. They were looking to be financially independent. They were looking to serve their country. They had all these great motivators, but then also the pressure to prove themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. She lived on base with 150 other women, and though Julia was no delicate flower, military life was much different, much different experience for her and the other women. As she said, quote, they don't treat you like ladies. They treat you like soldiers. Where we stayed, it had been stables, and they put you up in bunk, they put up bunk beds for us to sleep in. So, you know, they were, I mean, it's, it's military life. Yeah. But obviously, it's not what these women are accustomed to. Along with clerical work, Julia worked as a driver in the army. Uh, she stopped cool. driving, though, when a superior officer realized that she was the only female driver and felt that her being among that many men could be dangerous for her. Which is really sad that, like, I, I didn't find anything that she had an issue or was attacked. But, but the this, fact that there the superior was officer like is like, yeah. oh, the, she's the only woman amongst a bunch of dudes. That's not safe. I'm like, oh, That's telling, and that's really unfortunate. Julia considered making the Army her career, but in 1945, she received an honorable discharge as a staff sergeant so she could care for her ailing mother. Though she was the 11th of 12 children, her other sisters, um, you know, were either married with their own families or too young, so she was really the only female in the family who who could take care of her mother. Julia cared for her mother in the last four years of her life. After her mother's death, she returned to the military working as a civilian staff member at at the Topeka, Kansas Air Force Base until it closed. Then she moved on to other military installations. So even though she didn't rejoin the military proper, she worked as a civilian in a lot of these military institutions. That's awesome, though. She was also a member of the American Legion Post 410 say. In addition to working with the military as an enlisted member and civilian, Julia also volunteered extensively at the VA or the Veterans Administration, which like doing the Lord's work, girl. Right. Oh, my God. And she and when I say extensively, I mean, this woman was volunteering like every freaking day, even after she turned 100 years old. Wow. Good God. We're we're both coming covering women who like in their later years are still like Getting kicking ass. Done. Julia lived independently in her own home until February of 2019. After a leg wound began affecting her mobility, she le- moved into a nursing home in Wanamingo, Kansas, where she lived until passing away peacefully on November 16th, 2021. Whoa! So like 11 days of the as of this recording ago. Is that how Tierney found out about her? Yep. Yep. Because there were a bunch of postings like that she had passed away and Tierney sent me the article and I was like, oh, damn. She was 111 years old. That's insane. Jesus Christ. She actually, I, I don't know if I include the quote in here. She wanted to live to be older to like keep breaking records because <laughs> I'll, I'll get into amazing. it. But she's like the oldest name it in a lot of capacities. She was buried in Holy Cross Cemetery. 
During her life, Julia was recognized as the oldest living person in Kansas, the oldest member of the prairie band Potawatomi tribe, the oldest Native American World War II veteran, and even the oldest female veteran, period. I want to be like her when I grow up. (laughs) When you grow up. Mm -hmm. Love it. She credited her longevity to her ability to be independent and never marrying. Well, I'm screwed already. (laughs) She said, quote, I could do whatever I wanted. And it was really like she was able to do whatever she wanted because she was never held to the standards of being like a family woman. Right. And taking care of her husband and the house. It was always just about her. As the former Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation chairperson Tracy Stanhoff said, quote, Sorry. I'm just waiting. It's fine. Julia Cabans lived the life of... Hold on. I, I said her name wrong. I know I did. No, I didn't. Let me write down the time that I screwed this up. Did this start a new re- recording? Because it's only says 13. <laughs> nope. Oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. Oh, it okay. Did. We're because, okay. Because I paused it when we went to the bathroom. Okay. Just write that down. Julia Cabanz lived the life of a warrior, patriot, and respected tribal veteran. She was extraordinary in exhibiting a true zest for life. At her birthday party three years ago, held in concert with the annual Potawatomi gathering hosted by our tribe, she was a beautiful spirit sharing with us stories from the photos on display and instructing us to archive them as the tribal government center. And unfortunately, she did a bunch of interviews because obviously she literally just died. Right. But I couldn't find more information about her military service. So this was a bit of a shorty, but I I thought it was so interesting. And I thought her story was a unique way to explore what women who enlisted during World War II dealt with. Also her representation as an indigenous person serving in the military and how much life this woman saw. Like she was already 33 years old when she enlisted in the military. Right. Like (laughs) good grief. Like I feel like that's uncommon in itself for them to take someone like especially a woman. They, uh, this was when the men were off. They were, yeah, they they weren't as selective, especially depending on what you were doing. That's true. You know? But yeah, that is the story of Julia Cabance. Who, well, and if uh, you want, remember, if you wanted to be a nurse, you, had, you couldn't be too pretty. Oh, uh, obviously. Yes, you'd be, you'd be a distraction. But yeah, Julia, uh, who lived and lived and lived. Yeah, that's She lived amazing. a lot of life. <laughs> and thank you so much, Tierney, for the recommendation. I feel like Dolores is going to give her a run for her money, though. Oh my God. If Dolores lives to be 111 years old or older, I'm going to be a happy person. As long as she's like living a good right, life. Yes. Yeah. Cause like Julia, it blew my mind that she was, uh, as old as she was and still living independently. It kind of reminded me of my grandmother cause she passed away at 95 years old and she never entered a facility. She yeah, lived independently. And my grandfather, her husband passed away when I was in kindergarten and my grandmother died when I was in my 20s. So it was like 20 some years. That's insane. Give or take that like she amazing. lived alone independently. That's amazing. So yeah. Well, Kelly, I know yeah. uh, we've already kind of touched on Thanksgiving, but. What am I thankful for? What are you not thankful what for? I- Let's switch it up. <laughs> what do you just hate? Yeah. 
winter. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not there yet. I'm not, I'm not to the hating of winter yet. Um, what am I thankful for? I don't know. I, I'm thankful that it was like a short week. Like, because my two weeks before that were just overwhelming. With I had a coworker gone, so I was doing a lot. And so, like, I only work Monday and Tuesday this week. I took Wednesday off, and you know, it was just nice. It was nice to have a short week and like be in a place you know, financially and stuff that I can do that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, I'm thankful that, you know, kind of where I'm at in life right now and that, you know, especially like covering some of these women, you know, it makes me even more thankful that like, you know, they were there and they, you know, they did all this stuff to help even just women and their rights and stuff. And so I'm so very thankful. So often when we cover these stories, I'm like, wait, what do you mean I wouldn't have been able to open up my own bank account? What do you mean I wouldn't have been able to buy my own house? What do you mean I wouldn't be able to do all the things that I'm doing today? Right. And not that long ago, you know? No, exactly. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm thankful, yeah, that I got some time off and, you know, got to see my family and that's awesome. How about you? Um, I am thankful for Tierney for welcoming for bit welcoming me for bitch giving. That was awesome. It sounds fun. Uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it, just a really quick uh, public service announcement for everyone, though. Do not drink two old fashions on an empty stomach and then eat a bunch of Thanksgiving food expecting that to absorb the alcohol. You will puke a lot. But what I'm thankful second Thanksgiving, for, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't as good the second time. <laughs> no. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you can only imagine. But uh, I'm really thankful. So Jared's uh, stepfather was hospitalized with COVID and it was a really precarious situation at the beginning. We really didn't know how it was going to pan out. And he got out of the hospital within a week, oh, um, which was way quicker than any of us thought. He's staying with his brother, so he's not alone because he's he lives out on his farm. So we're really thankful that that turned out a lot better than any of us uh, could have hoped for, really. Because yeah, it, was, it was... Um, it was a really scary situation towards the beginning. We didn't know how that was going to pan out. So he's doing better. He's out of the hospital and we're really thankful for that. I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Whining About Herster. I feel like it was kind of a bummer. Yeah, end out, though. It, it was somber. It was good, positive, but somber. Yeah, there you go. Um, but uh, please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you. There's also a form to contact us on our website if you don't feel like, you know, typing in an email address. We also have a Patreon where you can donate to us for as little as $1. And if you do so in the next, like, two to three weeks, maybe you'll get a little Christmas surprise from us. Even if you only donate for one dollar, yeah, sure your address is on there, and you'll get something. We're pretty liberal as far as like you our get patrons. something, you get something. Yeah, yeah, we're not like, oh, you're only donating a dollar. Fuck you. Like, like you're not really- gonna get a wine glass, but yeah. you'll get other stuff. Um, and we also have merch, which is spreadshirt.com. You can also find it on our website yeah. under the merch or our link tab. tree on any of our other social media. Yeah, you, you can figure it out. It's You're around. All savvy. It's around. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.